Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the other Shi'is. That's to say, the lesser-known Shi'i Muslims of India and Pakistan. Although we often think about Shi'ism in relation to Iran, or indeed Iraq and perhaps sometimes Lebanon, the Shi'i population of India and Pakistan combined has been professionally estimated as being anything between 35 and 50 or more million people. That's a lot of Shia Muslims in South Asia then, even though they are a minority. And in the case of the Shia Muslims of India, a minority in a minority. We'll be talking today, though, not so much about statistics and numbers, but about places, everyday ritual practices, and indeed the relics and material culture, the artworks that summon the sacred history, the Heilsgeschichte of Shia Islam and bring it from its early historic locations in the Iraq of the 7th century to villages, towns and cities across the Indian subcontinent. I remember one of my own journeys, visitations, pilgrimages to one such place, which is the shrine of Mawla Ali outside the city of Hyderabad in southern India. It was during the monsoon season. I remember it vividly. There was a break in the rains and I took a rickshaw out of the busy, (laughs) bustling, crowded old city of central Hyderabad out to the hill on which the shrine stands, some miles outside the city. It's extraordinary landscape in the Deccan hills. Flat on the whole, the plateau of the Deccan, but with these rocky outcrops, some with quite extraordinary rock formations. And on the top of one of those hillocks, still a fair size to climb up, was this building, built in the 17th and 18th century, the shrine then of Maula Ali. I climbed up the ceremonial staircase through a great arch in the surrounding walls and towards the building that looked just like one of the mausoleums of the Muslim saints across India. As I took off my shoes, climbed up steps, stepped over the sacred threshold into the shrine, curtains were parted for me. Silk drapes, satin drapes of different colours, green, yellow, bright red. The air was thick with incense. And the Mujawar, the caretaker, escorted me through to the sacred centre of the shrine. And as he parted further silk and satin paradas, curtains, what was revealed was not a grave and not really an image in perhaps the sense we might expect. Certainly not a statue, but what was there was a piece of stone with a handprint embossed within it, printed within the living black rock of the Deccan, the volcanic stone of the surrounding hills. What that was, as pilgrims have believed for centuries, was the handprint of Imam Ali, the son-in-law of the Prophet Muhammad, and the first of the Shi'i Imams. According to local belief, Imam Ali appeared in a dream to a prince of the Qutb Shahi Shi'i dynasty that ruled over that part of India in the later 16th and 17th century, and in fact founded the city of Hyderabad. And after that prince woke up from the dream in the morning, he rode out of the city to that hill, where in his dream he had met with Imam Ali. 
And as he looked across the hill in the morning light, what did he see but that handprint there on the rock, where in the dream he'd seen the imam leaning and placing his hand. Pilgrims still go to the shrine of Imam Ali, not only Shiites but Sunni Muslims and indeed many Hindus from the region who are brought into this Shi'i culture that incorporated then not only Shi'is and Sunnis but even many Hindus. And they incorporated these different peoples to these sacred spaces precisely because of the beauty, the appeal, the magic and mystery of these places on the Indian landscape that brought the sacred places and indeed the sacred persons of early Islamic history to the hills and rainy monsoon landscape of the Indian subcontinent. While joining me and indeed leading me in this conversational ramble across the sacred Shi'i landscapes of India and Pakistan is Karen Ruffle. She is an associate professor of the history of religions at the University of Toronto and she's the author of Everyday Shiism in South Asia, which was published by Wiley Blackwell in 2021. Hello, Karen. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Hi, Niall. It's so uh, wonderful to be here with you today. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, me too, very much, because today we're going to be talking about the Shias or the Shiites of South Asia, which in other words, is effectively the modern states of nation states of India and Pakistan. And although, you know, often we generally think of Shiism as really being associated with Iran and perhaps also Iraq, South Asia has a, a very huge Shia population. And they're particularly interesting for all, all manner of reasons, which you'll be telling us about. But among those reasons is that when we turn to India in particular, the Shias a minority in a minority. Muslims are a minority within, within India, but the Shi is a minority within that. And yet they have a kind of a cultural presence and a, a level of actual cultural participation, which, as you'll be telling us, perhaps, sort of goes far beyond what we might think of, well, this is just a very minority or a double minoritarian story. So perhaps can you start us off then by just sort of introducing us to the Shias of South Asia? Absolutely. Uh, thank you so much for that introduction, Niall. Um, yeah, it seems as though why would I write, we might ask, why would I write a, a history or why would I write a book uh, about a micro, a micro community? Uh, and, you know, yet at the same time, it's a micro community that uh, we, we could say is hyper visible. And I want to start with with some numbers, you get, you know, you, you, you gave, you know, very generally you gave some numbers, but I always return to uh, the 2009 Pew Foundation report mapping the global Muslim population uh, in which the, the report states that 75% of the global Shi'i population lives in the Asia Pacific region, which includes, yes, we must note, that the Shi'i uh, majority of Iran is part of, of this region. Yet at the same time, Pakistan's Shi'i population is approximately 17 to 26 million out of a total country population of just over 174 million. That's a significant minority. And at the same time, India's Shi'i population is 16 to 24 million out of a total Muslim population of almost 161 million. Now, these numbers, of course, have changed because this was done in 2009. In 2018, the total population of India was 1.32 billion. Now, if you, you will notice, uh, for those listeners uh, of, of the podcast, these are sliding numbers, 17 to 26 million for Pakistan, 16 to 24 million for India. There, there are re reasons for this that I will note uh, and explain in, in just a moment. I do want to 
make it clear that the populations for each of these two countries are statistically small. The combined population of Shia in Pakistan and India is between 33 and 50 million, equaling the number of Shia in all countries of the Middle East and North Africa. So these two regions combined, total, which in both uh, in the MENA region is between 36 and 44 million, according to the Pew report. That's, I think, quite statistically significant that the Shia population for India and Pakistan outnumbers Shia living in the Middle East and North Af Africa if we exclude uh, Iran. Iran's total population in 2020, so this is a more updated number, was 83.7 million, of which 89% are Shia. The vast majority of Iranians, so almost 90%, are Shia, with 10% identifying as Sunni and 1% variously as Zoroastrian, Baha'i, Christian, or Jewish. Now, I think the Pew Foundation report demonstrates what I consider to be remarkable sensitivity in calculating the number, these, these Shi'i populations. For example, they note that these sent the census data that is, are collected are estimates only, hence these, these sliding scales, uh, because few censuses include questions about religious identity. And when they do, Oftentimes, answers are not divided or broken down uh, to, to account for communitarian identity. Uh, so, we, so these religious um, you know, identities or, or how we account for this are really only generic classifications. They're estimates at best. And there are other issues that we have to, we ha for which we have to account um, in, in many countries, uh, Shia, uh, experience. So where Shia are religious minorities, they often experience discrimination and persecution. And, and so it's very often likely that Shia have put into practice the theological doctrine of precautionary concealment known as taqiyya in order to blend in with the larger Muslim community. So they may not disclose the fact that they are Shia, uh, which we have to note further complicates attempts to distinguish and enumerate religiously diverse populations. For this reason, we do have to estimate Shi'i populations uh, in various cities and re regions in South Asia, so in India and Pakistan, uh, and, and particularly in the post-partition, so post-1947 period, uh, this becomes even more complicated. As I said uh, at the beginning, Muharram is a hyper-visible -vis ritual in South Asia for a number of reasons. One it being its large-scale large processions of alams and tazias, which I will talk about, particular forms of material culture, uh, and as well as men's performance of bloody self-flagellation, khunimatam, on the 10th day of Muharram, uh, the first month of the Hijri, the lunar, the Muslim lunar uh, calendar. Uh, so on this 10th day of the month of Muharram, uh, the Prophet Muhammad's grandson, Hussein, uh, Imam Hussein was martyred on the battlefield of Karbala in Iraq. Uh, and, and so this day is commemorated each year with uh, processions of sacred objects uh, and, and the act of self-flagellation is a way of uh, demonstrating loyalty and love for the imam and for his family. Uh, and so these are the blood descendants of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, who are sort of reckoned through uh, the Prophet Muhammad's daughter, Fatima Zahra, and her husband, uh, Im the first Imam Ali, who was also the Prophet Muhammad's cousin. Uh, and, and so these people are known as the Ahle Bayt. Uh, this is a term you will hear uh, frequently uh, during uh, the, this next hour or so. Uh, the Ahle Bayt are um, much beloved, not only by Shia, but also by uh, Sufi-oriented communities uh, in South Asia. In India and Pakistan, minority communities like the Shia cannot help but be seen during Muharram. 
Yet the long durée of their historical presence in the subcontinent, which according to tradition, we might reckon goes back as far as the seventh century. Uh, the religious influence of Shiism on things like literature, architecture, politics, and the arts remains an emergent. These are all emergent fields of exploration. They're all deserving of further inquiry and study. Uh, by focusing on these practices of devotion, uh, it, it enables us to refocus our analytical gaze, to be attempt, attentive, to be aware of the long complex history of Shiism in the subcontinent, while also problematizing the idea of things like center and periphery, uh, particularly when we take into consideration the combined Shi'i population of India and Pakistan. And if you look at any, uh, for example, introductory text uh, in the, a number of introductory texts uh, on uh, Shiism have been published in the last couple of decades. And uh, if, when she, uh, South Asia, when the subcontinent is mentioned, uh, it's usually in passing. Uh, and, and despite the long history of Shiism in, uh, in South Asia, uh, and um, and sort of the very you know visible place uh, and cultural impact of Shiism uh, you know in South Asia uh, very little attention has been paid that that really is is greatly needed. Well, that's really helpful, Karen. So this is setting us up with with you know the, the reasons I guess in some ways even mm -hmm. the, the statistical reasons why we should be paying more attention to the Shias of South Asia. One of the reasons why in Akbar's chamber, we, we have so many podcasts on South Asia, what's now India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Afghanistan, is that this is where the world's largest Muslim population is by far, far outnumbering the Middle East. And you've given us some sense that even though the Shia minority there, even going back to 2009 and that and that Pew report, even then we have a population, as, as you've said, between 33 and 50 million Shias. So this is this is a, a lot of people. This is not, we might say, a minority, but in absolute numbers, this is, you know, kind of a, a really a lot of people whose traditions, whose practices uh, are really, you know, worthy of study intrinsically, but also perhaps even for statistical reasons. And Islam, of course, like all religions, has its special places. And for traditional Muslim, and particularly the Shi'i communities of South Asia then, those sacred and ritual spaces are much more varied than mosques. So perhaps can you tell us about the different sacred spaces then venerated by Indus Shia, whether the Ashur Khanas, Imam Baras, Karbala cemeteries, or indeed the Dargahs, the shrines that we often associate really with Sufis rather than Shias. Absolutely. Uh, so throughout India and Pakistan, Shia gather in special buildings to venerate alums and replica representations, uh, what we would call in Urdu Shabi, of Imam Hussein's shrine tomb, uh, the tazia and sarcophagus um, uh, so the shrine tomb of, so is Karbala shrine tomb and sarcophagus, which is known as Zari, uh, as well as to participate in the majlis -e the morning assembly uh, in which uh, the cultural memory of Karbala is performed. These buildings, worth, yes. Sorry, can I just worth reiterating that the Karbala, this battlefield really in of uh, in, in 680, really sort of of the common era, or, or this battle there that was important in this day, the 10th of Muharram in 61 in the Islamic calendar, as you've already mentioned, Muharram. This is when uh, Imam Hussein, then the, uh, I guess the third, no, I guess the third of the Shi'i Imams is martyred. And this is the sort of the, the, the main time and place of ritual commemoration, isn't it, that, 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 that we're talking about here? Yes, absolutely. During uh, during the first ten days of Muharram, uh, Shia uh, throughout South Asia uh, and Shia all throughout uh, the Islamic world uh, gather together in special places, special buildings uh, to to hear uh, to listen to poetry and to uh, hear discourses uh, that extol 
the sufferings. Uh, so in, in Urdu, we call this masayab. Uh, uh, so the suffering, so this literally means the sufferings of, of Imam Hussein, uh, of, of his family members. So in particular, uh, in, you know, in many parts of South Asia, the, the bravery and, and sort of the, the, the ethic of love and care of his half-brother Abbas, uh, who, who went on a mission to the banks of the Euphrates River, uh, uh, you know, to, to gather water for the children uh, in, in the encampment uh, from, because from the seventh day of, of um, Muharram, uh, the, the army of the Umayyad uh, Khalifa Yazid, uh, who, who had demanded uh, the loyalty, an oath of loyalty known as Bayah uh, from uh, Hussein, who refused to give this oath of loyalty. And this is sort of one of the things that sort of sets in motion this whole sort of catastrophe this, uh, and, and, and this sort of this stalemate, uh, and there, there are a whole series of other sort of events um, that that set in motion uh, this this sort of military standoff that leads to the battle that took place on the tenth of Muharram. So this is a small digression to, to establish context before before I discuss uh, these these special buildings. Uh, but but uh, Imam Hussein had been invited by by um, by. Uh, what we would call what, what now we would call Shia, uh, but but these partisans of um, of of Hussein's father uh, Ali, they had invited him uh, come to to Kufa, a city located in Iraq, and we will give you we will give you protection uh, and and so so Imam Hussein and his small sort of caravan or uh, troop uh, of 72 men and members of Hussein's family set off um, from Medina to, um, to Kufa. And, and they were intercepted at this place called Karbala. And, and Karbala is actually made, it's, it's a word, it, it's a compound word made up of, of two words, Karb Obala. So and it's very much played up uh, in, in Urdu and Persian poetry. You know, it's the place in a sense of grief and suffering. Uh, and, and so, uh, so here, here is Imam Hussein with his tiny, uh, you know, entourage of, of supporters and, and this army that's sent by Yazid of, of, you know, 10,000, at least 10,000, uh, you know, uh, cavalrymen, uh, you know, intercepts them. And, and you can imagine this is, this is not going to be a fair, fair fight. Uh, and, and, and so, and of course, you know, according to the, the sources, you know, Imam Hussein knows that this is a battle that he will not win, but, but in a sense, this is not the point of, of this. And, you know, this is, you know, in a sense, you know, the, the, the battle is interpreted in various ways. It's about justice. It's about, um, you know, it's about good versus wrong. It's, you know, the, the point is that, you know, Imam Hussein is not going to give in to, uh, you know, to this, in a sense, this, you know, this so, you know, this sovereign, right? This king who is, in a sense, not not fairly, you know, not fairly, you know, the king, and 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 you know, he has a usurped power, and and so so on the tenth of Muharram, you know, that the you know the the surviving men of the entourage are are, are slaughtered. Uh, the women are taken prisoner. Uh, the only the only male who survives is is Imam Hussein's eldest son um, Zainal Abedin, who uh, was was sick and um, and was unable to fight, uh, and so he becomes the fourth Imam. So so that sort of establishes some context, uh, and and so over the ten days, uh, people come to. Uh, these these special buildings that I will describe in in just a moment. Their place is such an as an ashokana, 
the house of the 10th. And I'll talk more in more detail about the Ashur Khanna, the Imambara, the mansion of the Imam. And I'll also discuss the, the Imambara. The chillas are tombless memorial shrines. Barga, a court. The Imam Barga, the court of the Imam. These are all places where people come together to, to hear, um, to hear, you know, stories about, you know, the sufferings of, of these, of these figures and in particular days are dedicated to the martyrdom of, so Imam, uh, the, the martyrdom of Abbas, Imam Hussein's half-brother, whose, whose arms were, were cut off. Um, and so he sort of, uh, you know, he, he experiences terrible suffering as he's trying to gather water, but he, he persists. Nonetheless, he persists and persists. Uh, the martyrdom of, of, um, of uh, Hussein's second eldest son, Ali Akbar, who is described as incredibly handsome. Uh, you know, he's 18 years old. Uh, and in South Asia, you know, poetry. So another thing that, that takes place is the recitation of different types of poetry that I describe in the second chapter of my book, uh, the chapter on on literary aesthetics, uh, poetry dedicated to Ali Akbar, uh, you know, laments uh, the fact that here's this young man of, of, you know, tremendous, you know, sort of beauty, uh, you know, handsomeness, charisma, uh, who never would be able to, to marry and, and perpetuate the line. Uh, and, and so there's a specific day dedicated to to each of these martyrs uh and and so 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 each day during the the 10 days um and particularly from the 6th of muharram to the 10th the 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 you know the ashurkhana the imambara sort of the sort of the pace uh you know accelerates the the feeling of you know sort of religious energy um accelerates uh, so, so now I would like to just spend a few minutes uh, talking about uh, about these spaces and and what they mean and and what they do and and actually what what they contain. What what are these buildings like? Um, you know, what do you see when you when you go inside of an ashokana or an imambara? Um, you know, because these are these buildings are very different from a mosque, and 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 so for for Shia in South Asia, uh, you know, sort of in a sense, we might say the art the architectural repertoire is is much more expansive, uh, and 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 the form and function of of these devotional buildings that are used to venerate and remember. Uh, the martyrdom of Imam Hussein, and to um, and to affirm one's love and loyalty for for the Ahle Bayt. Uh, these buildings are explicitly South Asian. You you really, I mean, you really, in many regards, you don't find buildings like this in other parts of the Shi'i world. There, I mean, you can go to Iran and you can go to an you know a building like an Imam Zadeh or a Hosseinia. Uh, but where you can also hear discourses and and you know uh, recitation of poetry, but but I think the fact that the, there's such a proliferation of material forms and objects that are displayed in these spaces, I think you know is 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 somewhat unique. <laughs> I, th I think that, that that's absolutely right. I mean, it's an interesting comparison, as you say, when we think of, of perhaps Iran as being, is that the norm of Shiism, or at least the, the obvious point of reference? And, right. and I think one of the big distinctions we find when we think of the, the, the history of Shiism in Iran, which becomes a, a sort of a Shi'i ruled state in 1501, and then becomes in 1979, a kind of a, a sort of modern Shi Islamic state, there is state patronage of Shia architecture from 1500 onwards, but it takes on this particularly sort of Persian aesthetic, not least with 
tiles that get even more colorful technologically from the 16th through the 19th century. In South Asia, by contrast, we have a couple of sort of moments really of kind of when we have kind of Shi'i rule, uh, Hyderabad, which you'll turn to mm -hmm. really in the sort of in the 17th century, mostly the city in southern India founded mm -hmm. in 1596 that that has the, the name Hyderabad, city of, of mm -hmm. Ali Haidar, yes. uh, sort of named after the, the, the first of the Shi'i Imams. And, and then later in Lucknow in the 18th century, where yes. there's a kind of a Shi'i sort of Shi'i leaning uh, dynasty there that gives this sort of state patronage but these are very different architectures as you'll tell us from from iran really part of particularly in in lucknow this kind of 18th century baroque that for people sort of raised perhaps on disney aladdin this is probably the form of islamic architecture that is sort of most baroque and even rococo in its sort mm -hmm. of uh, in its uh, expressiveness absolutely uh i i completely agree and 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 so, you know, and as a scholar of, of the Qutb Shahi period of, of Hyderabad Golconda, uh, you know, even with, you know, with the, with the religious architecture of, you know, of this, you know, late 16th, 17th century period, of course, we can see, you know, particular aesthetic styles that, that are, you know, that emerge, that, that, you know, that are present. Um, you know, I think that we, you know, we can, and we can see innovations in the architectural style that developed in, in North India, particularly in, in Lucknow in, in the 18th and 19th centuries. We have to, I think we have to acknowledge that Ashokanas and Imambaras developed in harmony with local South Asian religious architectural forms and material cultural practices and not as derivative of Iranian Shiism, as has been popular, popularly assumed. And this becomes even more, you know, critically important to, you know, to, to, you know, acknowledge with regard to, you know, material, you know, sort of, you know, image objects or devotional objects, however we want to term these, uh, you know, with, ob you know, objects such as the alam, which we'll talk about, you know, a bit later, and the Tazia, right? Uh, the the replica uh, shrine tomb of Imam Hussein, uh, and and the alam as you know this sort of metal crest or 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 standard uh, that that um, you know represents um, you know a figure like Abbas or Imam Hussein or or other members of the of the Ahmed Bayt. Uh, you know, there's this idea that you know the alam, for example, is derivative of, of Safavid Shiism, and and you know more recent. This is something in my own work I've really pushed back against, and and in in work elsewhere. But but you know, it's something that we really have to we have to look at you know, our local environments and, and, you know, for example, what, you know, what are, what was happening on the ground, you know, in the 17th century, what's happening on the ground in the 19th century. And, and so, you know, for example, you know, with Tazia, Tazia processions during 19th, the 19th century in, you know, in, south and you know south and central india i mean we have the you know the development of you know of ganesh chaturthi in maharashtra as you know sort of a, you know this sort of hindu nationalist right response to the procession of of tazias and uh, we're in a sense carnivalesque in a, in a sense really with the you know, when we read accounts of these were notionally and indeed in some sense mourning processions, but but there was a great deal of of dressing up, of mummery, yes. indeed of mockery. So these were, yes. as it was, were a carnivalesque Islam as well. So these buildings then, I mean, they often have kind of stories associated with them. They're kind of living in a sort of narrative sense uh, as well. Yes, they are. Uh, and so one of my favorite stories actually uh, has to do with um, uh, an Ashokana in Hyderabad called the Pandashai Walayat uh, 
Ashur Khanna, uh, which dates from uh, the long reign of Abdullah Qutb Shah, which contains a number of relics as most of um, most Ashur Khanas uh, and Imambaras throughout India and Pakistan uh, do. Uh, and so Panja Shah uh, has relics uh, belonging to the Prophet Muhammad and Imam Ali. Uh, and so being known as Panja Shah, uh, it has a handprint uh, that uh, is said to have belonged to Imam Ali. And, and so this, uh, this Ashur Khan is really interesting because it sort of connects uh, sort of a history of the miraculous with uh, an event in sort of Shi'i history to a moment in contemporary Hyderabadi religio-political affairs. So what we can say is that the Ashur Khanna links sacred space and material objects uh, into sort of a remarkable story that takes place in sort of the, the built space of the Ashur Khanna itself. So the relic uh, that, uh, that is contained in the Ashur Khanna is attributed to the farewell pilgrimage of the Prophet Muhammad uh, and his supporters when they stopped at the wellspring, the Ghadir at Qum in the year in, in 632 in March. Uh, the pilgrims were tired and thirsty from their travels and they dropped a bucket into the well to slake their thirst. But, you know, oddly enough, the bucket was grabbed from within the well and some sort of mysterious being also grabbed the rope. And, and so there's no more, nobody could, could drink because the, the, well, uh, the, the bucket and rope were gone. So Muhammad says to Ali, go down and go, go see what's happening. So Ali puts his left hand on the black stone surrounding the well and he goes down. And so he fights with the jinn and, and he comes back up. And, and so when he comes back up, he again places his left hand on the black stone. And this time he leaves an impression. And so these uh, hand impressions uh, were acquired by uh, the seventh uh, Sultan of the Lakutub Shah uh, from a man named Syed Amanullah uh, Rizvi, uh, who at the time was living in Iraq. Uh, and, so, and so the broker, in a sense, was uh, the Safavid king. When the relics arrived in Hyderabad, they were installed in their own Ashur Khanna. They received royal insignia as uh, really important relics during the, the Qutb Shahi period did. They received a parasol, a chatar, uh, the royal fish ensign uh, known as the Mahi Maratib. Uh, and so this particular Ashur Khanna uh, is flanked by a chain with four tablets containing verses from the Quran. So in the 19th century, something happens. And, and so we, we know that a man named Mir Aftab Jung, and, and there, this story is a little bit sketchy, but most likely this story about Mir Aftab Jung refers to Salar Jung I, Mir Tarab Ali Khan, who was prime minister of the Diwan under the sixth Sunni Asif Jah. Um, Mir Mahbub Ali Khan, who reigned from 1869 to 1911. Uh, okay, so very briefly, what happened was that Aftab Jung was intoxicated with the power um, that um, Mahbub Ali Khan had given to him. And so he conjured up this terrible plot to, to, to convert uh, Panja Shah into a horse stable. And he must have thought so, and this is uh, from a, sort of a, a hagiographical account. So he believed himself to be the Aurangzeb of the age. Uh, and so what he wanted to do was um, he commanded that the, the keeper of the Ashur Khanna uh, abandon the building and its grounds. Otherwise, he was going to completely demolish it. And, and so every day that passed, uh, the, the Mujavar wanted to to save the Ashur Khanna and the relic. And, and so uh, about 30 minutes before um, Aftab Jung said he was gonna uh, tear down the Ashur Khanna, um, the, a big rainstorm comes. And every time, uh, you know, Aftab Jung, Amir Aftab Jung, uh, you know, thinks that he's going to be able to come and, uh, you know, do this. It, it rains more. There's always some sort of um, natural calamity that happens. And then finally, Miraf Tabjung falls sick and he dies. 
And, and so outside of the Ashokana at the entrance, there is, so we can see that there is this sort of natural, so th there's power that the Ashokana and the relics themselves have. And so um, on this Blackstone cistern, there is an inscription that says, each person who enters this tomb shrine with sincerity can be assured that their prayers will be answered. And, and I think that this is a really exceptional narrative because, um, you know, we see the relics at work um, preserving this built space. So this is a really spiritually charged, um, you know, building. Um, and, and this is a story that I, I really, really love. So that's a really fascinating story then about one of these buildings patronized by this Qutb Shahi Shi'i dynasty that rules over Hyderabad. And then it's, it's con continuous. I mean, Hyderabad's in part of India, but it's never fully part of colonial India. It's an independent state. And it's absorbed into the Republic of India um, in 1948. And, and you've given us the sense too that these, these buildings are often built around... Uh, a relic. And it's, it's a really important thing that we might think, oh, Islam doesn't have relics and that's a Catholic or Christian thing. But Islam, Sunnis and Shias have a great many relics associated with the Prophet Muhammad, associated with the, the Ahl al-Bayt, the, the family of the Prophet Muhammad, venerated by Shias and many Sunnis, and indeed uh, relics associated with Sufis. And But, but Shias have this particularly important sort of relationship with with let's say with material culture that, that is sort of in a way recreate space. I mean, when Shi'is pray, they pray and worship in the same way that other Muslims do, the, 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 the multiple prayers per day, the five of, of Sunnis and often the three of Shi'is, but they place before them a, a small piece of clay called a, a turba or mod, which is a piece of the, of the clay, a piece of the soil of Karbala. So place is transportable in a way. And in the way that you're showing also through this footprint and the story, or this handprint rather, there are also footprints uh, that are transported from Karbala or indeed from other of the sacred places of Shia history in Iraq and, and Arabia. So in addition to these sacred buildings then, which often contain these handprints or footprints, South Asian Shias also had this rich tradition that a material culture, as the scholars now call it, which is to say, they make use of different objects and images, whether to focus their devotion or to evoke the, the memory and the, the places of Shi'i martyrdom and the lives of the other imams. So can you tell us of uh, a couple of examples, perhaps, of these religious objects and how India's Shia communities relate to them? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I mean, Karbala is itself, I mean, so focal, I mean, and, and it figures in, in myriad ways. Uh, and I mean, there, there are two ways, I mean, that we can, we can talk about, and, and, you know, we can think about Karbala, um, you know, one way is, you know, through uh, what we would call Karbala grounds, uh, just very, very quickly, uh, Karbala grounds are places where Tazias are buried. Uh, and and so and I'll talk about Tazias, but to very quickly provide context for what happens to a Tazia on on Ashura on the tenth of Muharram, uh, these are places. For example, in Lucknow, there are several famous Karbala burial grounds. Uh, but we see Karbalas throughout North, other places throughout North India, um, in in other parts of India, um, Karbala grounds take all sorts of forms. We see Karbala grounds uh, in, um, you know, throughout Pakistan. Um, a Karbala can be something as simple as a pit. Uh, it can be a body of water. Uh, and, and so this is a place uh, where, where an alam or a tazia, uh, so the, the replica shrine tomb of Imam Hussein, uh, can, be, can be so cooled so that that spiritual power that's contained within within these what we might call you know these these representational objects these shabi as we would say in Urdu so can be cooled 
Uh, so because because of that, that power that builds up over over the 10 days needs to be released. Uh, this is something that we see across religious traditions in South Asia. So we see the submersion, so the act of visarjan to use to use an Indic term uh, for for murtis for gods and goddesses also during uh, during you know annual puja. Uh, festivals and ceremonies. So Durga Puja, for example. Um, so Durga's, you know, the goddess Durga will also likewise be cooled, right? So, so this act is called uh, to, to, to cool the deity, right? To cool, to cool the, you know, to cool the spiritual figure, we, we do something called Tandakarna. So to cool the, you know, to release the, 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 you know, the, the being from the image. Uh, and so, so this very same act is, is done, and, and I'll talk about this in just a moment, with the Tazia, because during the 10 days of Muharram, uh, Shias, you know, many Shias believe that, that Imam Hussein, for example, is, you know, is present within, within a Tazia. So Natasia is one of these sort of symbolic coffins that often actually look like a building in a way, really. Exactly. These processions. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, and so, so, so those would be taken to a Karbala, right? So we have a doubling in a sense, right? The shrine tomb, the replica of the shrine tomb, where he's physically buried in Karbala. You take it to a Karbala ground, where that the, an act of burial again takes place for that release until next year. And, and so, so now maybe what I'll do is spend a couple of minutes just talking about what a Tazia is uh, in, a, in a bit more detail because Tazia uh, take two principal forms in South Asia, uh, ephemeral and permanent. Uh, and, uh, and so the, the relative permanence of these these replica shrine tombs uh, is associated with, you know, systems of patronage and and the financial means of of the ritual practitioners themselves. Uh, if you have a lot of money, you can afford to make you know have something that's more permanent, uh, more durable. Uh, if you're poor, uh, you might have a, rec a tomb replica that's made, you know, you know that is a bamboo structure, right? That is covered with, um, you know, tissue paper or, or maybe flowers. Um, it's something that can easily be, um, can be destroyed, right? In the sense that it can be buried, it can be submerged in water. Now, if it's something that's more permanent, right? It's, it's ca maybe carved wood, shisham wood or another type of wood and then maybe has enamel work you're not going to you're not going to bury that or immerse it in water because it's expensive uh and and so what in, instead inside there may be a, a zari right a sarcophagus that is removed wrapped and that is buried or immersed uh so we have you know sort of different economies, sort of spiritual economies of scale. Uh, and and so, so artisans over time have developed a fast repertoire of skills and sort of aesthetic forms that they've been able to adapt for the construction of Shi'i uh, Tazia. And, and, you know, but not all Tazia are Shia. So with ephemeral tazia, uh, as I, I mentioned, uh, these are, you know, tazia that are made on bamboo frames covered with brightly co co uh, colored talc, mica, silver, gold tinsel. Uh, they may be covered with flowers, roses. Uh, they may weigh a couple of pounds, but they could be very, very tall. They may not be light. I, I mean, they may be light, but they could be very awkward, right? Because they could be several stories tall. Um, they may take the form of um, a Sufi Darga or, a, or may have a Hindu um, spire, a shikara. Uh, and, and so some of them rotate. They may have lights. Uh, you know, they you know, demonstrate tremendous creativity and skill. The second type I'll just mention very briefly um, is, is permanent tazia. And, and so 
These are much more durable and expensive. They include wood, silver, gold, ivory, glass, and brass. Uh, and these uh, are, uh, some are on permanent display throughout the year. Uh, others will um, only be displayed during the Ashra of Muharram, so during the first 10 days. Uh, and these will be uh, sort of are considered historic uh, and may, you know, ha have been sort of part, sort of the focal point of, um, you know, the religious landscapes of places like Chiniot, Multan, Hyderabad, Shikarpur. So these are all places in, in, in Pakistan, what is now Pakistan, uh, you know, and, and so these are very heavy, they're very durable. Um, they, some of them weigh over a ton. Uh, and, and they're quite, um, you know, uh, the 20th century Shi'i Mujtahid, um, Ali Naki Nakvi refers to these as um, manipulated resemblances. And, and I think he's absolutely right. They, they are, they're, they're very, very, you know, intensively manipulated. And in the resemblance, I think for people, it's very much, you know, it's, it's in a, what I think of as a heart matter, right? It's about, it's about love, the, the, the work, the labor that goes into it, the act of procession, the act of gazing. Uh, and, and, you know, what the Tazia does fundamentally, and I think this is the most important thing for people to know, is that the Tazia collapses the distance between the sub, subcontinent and Karbala, just like the Tazia, I mean, the Karbala grounds um, where, uh, you know, soil has been brought, right? And, you know, if, you know, there are cemeteries, you don't have to be buried in Karbala in Iraq. You're now, Karbala is in India or it's in Pakistan. Uh, the Tazia, likewise, you don't have to go to Iraq to see Imam Hussein's tomb because it's now in India or it's in Pakistan and you can gaze directly on it. That, that's a crucial point, isn't it? That making the geographically and sort of chronologically the distant past and of, 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 a, of you know, a thousand or more miles away, absolutely present to have this sort of relationship with, with the martyrdom, really. And that's, as anyone who's ever attended one of these kind of processions of Muharram, it, it, it's really intense, it's really involved. I mean, this mixture that you've described for us of, of space and these manipulable objects that you can have a relationship with, the presence of the, the imam and the events of the martyrdom summoned through the telling of these stories in, in poetic and uh, kind of form is, is really kind of brings the, the present day participant into, you know, kind of the, into that place physically as well as, you know, kind of emotionally and sort of imaginatively. And this, you know, unsurprisingly, perhaps this, this intensity uh, emotionally, um, but but also in many ways, kind of the musical elements of the procession, the color, the smell, the sense of of, uh, of of these rituals across South India, means that it's it's not only Shia Muslims who participate in these devotions and rituals and processions. It's also Sunni Muslims, and perhaps more surprisingly certain Hindu individuals and indeed communities of Hindus. So can you explain to us then how Hindus relate to the Shi Imams and the family of the Prophet Muhammad, the Ahlul Bayt, the people of the, of the house of the Prophet? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Uh, as I was researching and conceiving the book, I felt a gap. Uh, initially, I didn't have a chapter thinking about uh, non-Shi'i, what I sort of think of as um, non-Shi'i lovers of the Ahle Bayt. And, and in a sense, devotion to the Imams in Ahle Bayt is, is it, in a sense, it transcends Shi'ism, particularly or uh, in South Asia. And so I, I felt this gap very keenly. And a series of questions kept coming to the surface that I, that I knew had to be addressed. Who are the devotees of the Imams in, in Ahle Bayt in South Asia? Do we count only the Shia as active participants in Muharram and other rituals dedicated to Imam Hussein and his family? And my own field work, uh, years and years of field work and, and participating in, you know, in 
Muharram rituals and, and other rituals knew that that was absolutely not the case. Um, seeing Sunnis and, and Hindus, uh, you know, engage deeply um, in, in these traditions and, and seeing what happens in, in village areas uh, where there aren't any Shias. Uh, that that you know there there need that there this needed to be accounted for and so as I was doing research, uh, you know I knew that uh, you know I needed to investigate more deeply and and so one community that uh, I, I think really needed attention uh, are the Husseini Brahmins uh, who have a very long and deep history uh, you know of devotion to uh, to uh, Imam Hussein to the Battle of Karbala. I mean, if we're talking about cultural memory uh, of um, of the Karbala event, uh, this is a, a community of of Brahmins uh, that uh, you know that assert presence at the Karbala event uh, and its aftermath. And and so I I think that uh, it would have you know it would have been a shame to write this book and not. Uh, account for for this strong uh, tradition of of loyalty and devotion, and and so um, so the Husseini Brahmins are a caste of Brahmins that trace their origins to the Gandhara region that's now located in contemporary northwest Pakistan, uh, in in sort of the area between Peshawar and Takshila, uh, and and so. Uh, there are a number of, of sort of competing um, or, and I don't know if competing is even the right word, but, but there, there are numerous stories in circulation about, um, about the, the Husseini Brahmins and particularly um, the sort of one, one sort of clan of, of the, of um, the Mohils known as the Dutts uh, who, um, who had um, an ancestor named Rahab, uh, who's believed to have fought on behalf of Imam Hussein at the Battle of Karbala. And, and so according to one, one narrative, um, you know, he uh, lived in, um, on the Arabian Peninsula and uh, had a close relationship with the Prophet. And it's claimed that Rahab and his seven sons fought alongside the Prophet. Uh, and, and so, uh, in, you know, in one of the, the versions, um, when Imam Hussein was decapitated, uh, it was Rahab, uh, and his sons who, uh, you know, went and, uh, you know, demanded the return of Imam Hussein's head and, you know, Rahab kept demanding, you know, give Hussein's head, give Hussein's head, give Hussein's head. And what, um, you know, what um, Shimmer, uh, one of the generals did, he kept, you know, instead in retaliation, decapita decapitating Rahab's sons until all of Rahab's sons were dead. Yet Rahab stood firm in his loyalty uh, to, um, to Hussein. And, and so, you know, so one thing that, um, you know, we see as, as a tradition with the Husseini Brahmins is that, um, you know, there's a tradition of making a symbolic mark on the neck uh, to, again, show that, that, you know, that act of loyalty uh, that Rahab did not back down, right, when, when his own sons were being killed. Uh, and, and so, there's a very long tradition, particularly in North India, around Delhi and, and in other places of Hosseini Brahmins, you know, being very active participants in Muharram rituals, although Yoginder Shikand has noted that uh, due to, um, you know, religious nationalism, uh, there's been pressure put on particularly younger members of the community to not participate so actively. Uh, so, so time will tell to see, to see what will happen in coming years. Yes, because as their name sort of uh, shows, Hussein the Brahmin, they are Brahmins. They are the, so to speak, the priestly caste of, uh, of of Hindus, and yet they are related. I suppose they as as their own ancestry, their own stories of their their own history, 
relates that they are descendants of, I suppose, the, the partisans or the companions of Hussein at the Battle of Karbala. So it's this extraordinary kind of religious uh, synthesis that we see as, as, as your work really shows so fascinating. The world can have Shiism in India involves Shias, and sometimes you can have kind of Shiism somehow uh, without Shias. So as we wrap up, perhaps you can tell us what these uh, everyday Shi traditions tell us about Islam and South Asia more generally. So the most important, one of the most important uh, points that the book, you know, that I try to make in the book is that Shiism and Shi communities that this is a lived tradition. It's a living tradition, and uh, and it's it's. I think disingenuous for us to to speak in abstractions and and we really need to understand that um that this is a humanistic tradition and and it's it's most helpful for us when we can think with specific examples when we can understand that Imam Hussein and the Ahle Bayt are are real. Uh, they they are alive in in the the religious imagination um, of South Asian Shi'i religious communities, and and these communities are not a monolith. They're diverse and they're different. Um, and, and that's something that diversity uh, is something that I've, I've tried to, um, I've tried to bring through in the, in the book with, with different case studies um, and, and examples. Professor Karen Ruffel, thank you so much for speaking to us in Akbar's Chamber. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Da 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 da